Wow. What a week that it has been. Unprecedented for many of us. But I want us to focus. Before we look at the regular message, I want us to focus on what God would say to us in the midst of this kind of week. I think of Isaiah the prophet. He's writing 700 years before the birth of Christ. He's writing in Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11 about Jesus, God, coming to earth in human flesh. He writes in Isaiah 53 about Jesus becoming the Lamb of God who was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And he died on behalf of our sins. All of these prophecies, four of the great prophecies of the Old Testament are 700 years before Christ. Let me read just one of them. Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Do you know the historical context? We have one of the godly kings of Judea. His name is Hezekiah to be followed by Manasseh, a very ungodly king. In fact, it's Manasseh that will put Isaiah in a log and he will saw the log in half and martyr Isaiah. These are dark times. Hezekiah is the king when Sennacherib of Assyria has surrounded Jerusalem. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've gone through the Hezekiah Tunnel, right? It brings fresh water a third of the mile from outside the city into the city because they're under siege. Sennacherib has surrounded the city. There's darkness, there's pestilence, there's famine, there's sickness. In fact, Scripture tells us that we have the king, Hezekiah, who offers all sorts of gold, silver, even the gold temple doors to buy Sennacherib off. In fact, we have Assyrian documents that say the same thing as the biblical documents. And so Sennacherib finally leaves and then he thinks to himself, what am I doing? There's still more gold in Jerusalem. And so having been bought off, he comes back. There is darkness in the land. People are dying. There's sickness. And what does Isaiah say? Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on the light. Don't allow the darkness to envelope your soul. Don't focus on the darkness. Focus on Jesus. What would he say to us today? Focus on Jesus. Seize the opportunity to tell people about Jesus. Don't allow fear to dominate. Look to Jesus. Place your faith, your confidence in Jesus. That's what he said to a nation that was under siege, facing famine, facing pestilence. People were dying. He's not dismissing the pain. He's not dismissing the darkness. But he said people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, there's a lot of fear. There's also a lot of mockery. Probably neither are wise. For many of us, uh, decisions are being made that we've never had to make before. 
Some agree, some disagree with the decisions. Allow us to have grace. Father, we, we pray for our country. We pray for our world. We ask, Father, that there would be great wisdom for those who are leading. We pray for the medical industry. One of the reasons, Lord, we understand that we want to slow this down is because the medical industry isn't quite ready for what could be an onslaught of sickness. Father, have mercy, have grace. But in the midst of this, allow us to keep our eyes on you. Not to be overwhelmed with darkness. Allow us to see the great light, to focus on the light, to encourage others to focus on the light. We ask that this would be true in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, this week I'm going to go ahead and preach what I had planned, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. So you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 to 13. Next week I'm going to leave my schedule and I'm going to talk about faith and trust. Today's text at first glance kind of almost seems a little bit out of touch with 21st century America. It's about food that had previously been all offered at an idol and now is sold in the marketplace, the Agora, and unsuspecting Christ followers are buying some of this food and they have to decide in their minds, should they eat food because it might have been offered to idols or should they abstain from food, specifically meat, because it might have been offered to idols? And how does this work in our consciousness? And we say, really? This is what we're going to talk about? Now, this is a real issue in the third world still today, but it's not a real issue here in the United States. But if you lift up the text and you look at what's underneath, what's underneath is how to handle issues in which the Bible does not condemn or commend. How do we handle issues where God doesn't say do and he doesn't say don't and we have to follow our conscience and God might leave my conscience a little bit different than he leads your conscience. How do we handle, how do we wrestle with these type of issues? It's legalism. That's the issue. Legalism is extra biblical rules. Adhering to those extra biblical rules and then treating those extra biblical rules as a measuring rod of orthodoxy and godliness. That's what legalism is. It's when I add things to scripture and then I measure your godliness against what I have added to scripture. You remember how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. They were quite conservative in their day. In fact, they were the strongest adherence to God's word. But they added to it. And then they expected others to follow those rules. And Jesus roundly condemned them. He called them whitewashed sepulchers, brood of vipers. He had the harshest words found in the New Testament towards the Pharisees. Gray areas, those in which the Bible doesn't condemn or command, gray areas are grace areas. Let me offer a few such areas or observations. First, legalists tend to believe that their version of the scriptures is the best one and your version is of the devil. I can't tell you how many times people have 
defended a certain version or another and even given me books to read so that I might understand better that I've got it wrong. Probably the most common is those who say the KJV was good enough for Jesus, so it's good enough for them. Never mind that it was published in 1611 and in only one language, how ethnocentric, for us to fight over one language translation. I can tell you in all the years that I have been around very learned women and men who can read the Bible in original languages really well, I have never found a single one that would argue that the KJV is the best translation. Some of them, it's their favorite translation. It might be yours, that's great. But it's arrogance to say one translation is the best and the others are wrong. Second, legalists often have an us versus them mentality. It's a fortress mentality, and if you're not in with the in group, you are looked on with suspicion. And so we need to evaluate our lives against these kind of criteria. If I'm looking at people and they're not part of my in crowd and I'm always suspicious of them, I might be a legalist. Legalists tend to be smug and prideful of their biblical knowledge, but remember, knowledge condemns us if it doesn't transfer into heart change. Legalists, four, they tend to take secondary issues and make them primary, and they divide over them, like the timing mechanism for end-time issues, or exactly how does uh, divine election and human responsibility work, or or some of these secondary issues, important ones. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm not saying we don't study them, that we're not convinced in our hearts, but why would we divide over them when sincere believers throughout history have come to slightly divergent conclusions? Fourth, or fifth, legalists are more at home with condemnation rather than commendation. They don't really focus on grace and mercy and love and the fact that Jesus has saved us. It's kind of, again, an us versus them mentality. Six, legalistic sermons tend to be far more condemning rather than marveling at the fact that God would save a sinner like me. Seventh, legalists frown on Christ followers who spend time with them people. But what did Jesus do? He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And eight, legalists have a sin list that you better not be tempted with. It tends to be a list that they're not tempted with. They've got their own temptations, but those are kind of secondary sins. And they have this sense that the church is for saints only, and it is for saints, but it's also a messy hospital for sinners. And I can tell you, Highland's rather messy, and it's led by very messy leaders. That's not an excuse for sin. It's just a reality that we are all in need of utter grace. One last comment. Uh, not long ago, I heard a teen who had been given a curfew by his parents, say, you guys, mom and dad, you're such legalists. That's not legalism. That's parenting. In fact, I think parents 
of at-home and adult children serve a higher master, God, and so we expect in our home morality and ethics, and don't say, I'm 19, I'm an adult, I can do what I want. Not if you're in your parents' home. They serve a higher master, and they ought to honor a higher master. Well, this is kind of a long introduction to our text. Let me pick up in 1 Corinthians 8. Let's listen to God's Word, verses 1 to 13. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours did not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eaten in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you actually sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. As we all know, the Bible forbids certain activities. We've got a lot of those, right? Honor your father and mother. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. The Bible also says some positive things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and might. Love your neighbor as yourself. Where the Bible says don't, we don't. Where the Bible says do, we do. But Paul isn't talking about those areas. He's talking about gray areas where the Bible may give some wisdom, but doesn't say do, doesn't say don't. And gray areas are grace areas. Apparently, one of these gray areas is food, meat, that might have been offered at a temple prior to you going to the Agora, the marketplace, and buying it. Let me set the scene. We know that in ancient Corinth and Athens, about 50 miles apart, we have unearthed temples to 26 different false gods. And in many of these situations, idolaters would come and offer meat. Now let's think of the temple of Hephaestus. It is the most spectacular temple I'm aware of from the ancient world that's still standing. Hephaestus. Festus is a Latin word. It means frivolity or joy. And this is the god of metallology and fire. 
And what would happen is that particular temple would be about 200 yards from the agora, the marketplace. And so some idolaters would go to the temple of Hephaestus and they would bring some meat and the priest or priestess would take the meat and some of it they would burn on an altar. Some of it they would set aside for themselves and their family and some of it they would take to the agora to sell to build up the, the costs, the money used to run the temple. And so you would go to the, the agora, you and I, let's, we're going to have a party, a celebration. And so I go there and I shop and, and I buy some meat. I bring it home and Betty Ann prepares it. And we sit at the table and all of a sudden one of you says, hey, do you know, by the way, if this was offered to Zeus, also called Jupiter, or maybe was it uh, to Artemis called Diana, or was it Dionysus called Bacchus? Was this at a temple before? And I would say, I don't know. I have no idea. Who, who cares, man? Th those are false gods. Now, we know that more than 50% of the meat that was sold in the Agora during Paul's day in Corinth and Athens had previously been at a false temple, more than 50%. So when you're at my house and you're eating, there is better than 50% chance that what we're about to eat had been at a temple previously. And, and suppose that doesn't bother your conscience and you like Paul, you just cite Psalm 115, four to eight, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, they have hands but do not feel, feet, uh, feet that do not walk, they don't make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all of you who trust in them. You know, it's not a big deal because an idol isn't even real. I think actually that's Paul's position in the text. I know that surprises us. I think that's Paul's position. So I think back to Christmas this last year. You remember it was quite warm. And in our house, we voted that uh, turkey is not our favorite. So a few days before, I went to a local grocery store and bought some chicken and I bought some beef, and then that day, uh, my son Isaiah, my son-in-law, Ryan and I, we cooked some meat on the barbie, and you know what? We never had the discussion. Could this meat have been offered to idols? Because that's just not where we're at. But if we had been 2,000 years ago in Corinth or Athens, we would have had this discussion. And so at the table, We'd all have to make a decision. Does that bother our conscience or are we free to eat? That's the situation in 1 Corinthians 8. I can tell you for me, it'd bother my conscience. It would. I'd love to tell you it wouldn't because I understand what the text says in uh, verses 8 and 9 and a little bit later. Also in Romans 14 and 15, it says that I'm spiritually weak. That's not Jeff's opinion. That's God's opinion given to us by Paul. Some of you would say, who cares, man? This is meat. It's good meat. And if it was offered to idols, I don't even know about it. It doesn't bother my conscience. Pass the A1, man. I'm getting into this meat. And what would happen if it bothered my conscience, which I happen to know it would, and you said... What a wimp. 
come on, man, and you ridicule me. Well, the text says you're puffed up, verses 1 and 2, and you lack love. Instead, the text says that you don't guilt me, and I don't guilt you. I saw this worked out recently. I was at a conference with about 1,500 pastors and other individuals. It was a theological feast. We went from seminar to seminar all day long, and, and it was wonderful. And then we went back to a hotel, and in our hotel, it was like everybody was a pastor. And so there was this gathering area, and in this gathering area, some of these pastors played Texas Hold'em. Oh, they weren't playing for money. They weren't playing for M&Ms. They were playing for bragging rights. And then there was another pastor. He was there with some of his friends. And I observed that he didn't play. But he didn't guilt those who did play. And those who did play didn't mock him for not playing. I wonder what you think of my illustration. Some of you are horrified that pastors would play Texas Hold'em. And you're ashamed of those pastors. Some of you are thinking, man, I wish I had been there and they had dealt me in. A few of you are just happy that a pastor even knows what Texas Hold'em is. We have differences of opinion, right? But what I observed is that one pastor, it bothered his conscience, but he didn't do a drive-by guilting of another group of pastors who they didn't care if this game had been associated with bad things in the past or even in the present. They were just playing for fun and bragging rights and there was no exchange of anything. They were just playing a card game and everyone had a discussion and no one guilted each other. I think that's exactly what Paul says should happen. For the meat offered to idols, some said, you know what? That bothers my conscience. I happen to know that would be me. Others would say, I don't even know if this was at a temple. Are you kidding me? Man, give me mine medium rare. I want a dub, I'll take his. And nobody fights with nobody and nobody guilts others. Verse seven says, not all possess the knowledge. Apparently I don't. I'm on, on the weak side of the text. I love what verses 11 to 13 say. Let me read it again. It says this, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed because of arrogance. This weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Four principles. First, if the Bible says do, we do. If the Bible says don't, we don't. When the Bible speaks of morality and ethics, we follow the Bible. That's A. B, in gray areas where the Bible neither condemns or condones, follow the conscience God might lead one believer in one direction and another believer in another direction. Gray areas are grace areas. See, in gray areas, just show grace. Just show grace. And D, verse 13 affirms that sometimes a person with real freedom 
might abstain just for the sake of a sister or brother. That is, freedom isn't the ultimate goal. It isn't. The ultimate goal is unity within the body of Christ, that we care and love for one another, that we don't allow our freedom or our knowledge to puff us up, but rather we enjoy one another in Christ. Gray areas. We need to offer grace. I want to offer just five quick gray areas, maybe six. The first is this. We're in uncharted territory. We're in uncharted territory. You could say, the government is overreacting, destroying our economy. Maybe we won't know. We, we, we don't know. We don't know. And in fact, in four months, we won't know because we won't know if they hadn't done what they did, what would happen. We don't know. It's a grace area. You could say, I can't believe that Jeff capitulated and shut down services over 250. And you might be right. You might be wrong. It's a grace area. I can tell you that it's been incredibly gracious what people have sent me. Even those who disagree, most have been agreeing, but even those who have disagreed have done so in a gracious way. Let's be careful with our words. This is uncharted for our world, at least right now. We didn't live through the plague. This is uncharted for our world. Let's show grace. Let's model what grace is like. Now let's go to things that are, we're more familiar with. A grace area might be one like how you learn. I know lots of Christ followers who only read and listen to things in their narrow theological camp. If that's your position, that's great. Praise the Lord. It's not my position. I listen to things in a wide spectrum and then hopefully filter them through what I see to be biblical truth. And I try and learn from a wide spectrum. Which is right, which is wrong? Neither. Just be convinced in your heart and show grace to those who are a little bit different than you. So for me, I read from progressive dispensationalists, classic dispensationalists, covenantal, charismatic, reformed, Arminian, Cal Armin. That's my convictions. I learn from all of them. If you are someone who just will listen to someone in a narrow area, fine, follow your conviction, but show grace. Schooling, that's always a hot one. Do we virtual school, homeschool, public school, private school? We can be so divisive in these areas. What does Proverbs 22, 6 say? Train up a child in the way he should go. When he grows old, he will not depart. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, when someone is at home, when you go out, when they lie down, when they rise, tell them about Jesus. But it doesn't tell you exactly how to learn math and science. Do you do it virtually? Do you do it publicly? Do you do it privately? Do you do it in a Christian school, a public school? It, it doesn't say follow your conscience. But don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. I was public schooled from kindergarten through 12th grade, even though my mom actually taught in a Christian school that was a large one, over 1,000 students. 
I didn't go there. I went to a public school. But when I went to college, it was a Christian school. And then went to university, several of them, they were Christian schools. So I've done both sides of the spectrum. Follow your conscience. Don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Gray areas are grace areas. Holidays. <laughs> They're kind of gray. They're kind of gray. Is Frosty the snowman really of the devil? Is Rudolph demonic? Grace to one another, right? One of the great pastors in central Wisconsin, I never met him, but one of the great pastors in the last 50 years, I think would cringe at Christmas at any of Highland's four camps, campuses because we have Christmas trees and, and he felt that Christmas trees took the focus off of Christ and onto something secular. I'm actually of the opposite opinion. I see a Christmas tree and it reminds me that my Savior left the glories of heaven to come down, to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, and to die as a payment of my sin. And so he looks at a Christmas tree, and it pushes him away from Christ. I look at a Christmas tree, and it draws me to Christ. Which is right, which is wrong. It's a gray area. It's a grace area. <laughs> Halloween. Ooh-ooh. Probably I should just move on, right? Is Halloween just fun for little kids or is it the playground of the devil? I'll bet you every one of you has an opinion. Or some might say it's both and. Be convinced in your heart. Follow your conscience. Follow the wisdom of Scripture that you see. But know it's a gray area and gray areas are grace areas. Don't play the Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Alcohol. Betty Ann and I choose not to drink. I think there's a lot of reasons not to drink alcohol. I've counseled so many people and so many families that have been destroyed by alcohol that I just want nothing to do with it. I understand Proverbs 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Those who are led astray by it are not wise. I get that. But I also see in 1 Timothy 5, 23, Paul says to Timothy, hey, you've got some stomach ailments. Have a little alcohol with your water. I see in John chapter 2 that Jesus is at a wedding in Cana of Galilee up north. And he turns water into wine. And you say, well, that wasn't real wine. Of course it was. That's, that's, that's a really dumb argument. You remember Jesus gives a parable of putting new wine in old wineskins. That requires a fermentation of probably in excess of 6%, probably 8% alcohol to burst those wineskins. It was real alcohol. Be convinced in your heart. Gray areas are grace areas. Gray areas are grace areas. Don't play Holy Spirit in someone else's life. Finally, I think of worship preferences. I talk about it a lot because it's been such a divisive issue in the church. All of us worship God better with certain instrumentation. We just do. There's nothing wrong with that. Go to where you hear 
worship that draws you into the presence of our great God who is worthy of worship. But don't play Holy Spirit in the lives of others. I think of a time when Dr. John Piper was going to preach. I was there and they had this worship band. It was big with a couple synths, electric guitar, electric bass, a couple percussion instruments, and it was great worship. We loved it. I was excited about it. And, and then Dr. John Piper was going to preach, and, and his son introduced him. And his son went off text. Always dangerous to go off text. And his son looked at the instrumentation, and he said, you know, 10 years ago, when I was living under dad's roof, drums were of the devil, and electric guitars were demonic. And now that I've left home, my dad has gone all secular with the worship. And then John took the pulpit very sheepishly and had to admit to all of us he had turned a preference into a doctrine. And then God had convicted him of that. And now he's actually leading services that have the very instrumentation that he declared were demonic a decade earlier. Gray areas are grace areas. During this time when we have a lot of uncertainty, grace ought to dominate. The church should not be the most critical. It should be the most gracious. The church should not be the most fearful. We should be pointing to the light and have confidence. The church should not have this mentality that it's just us and we've got to preserve our family and protect us. It should be about others. We ought to be the most gracious people on the planet. Let's pray. Father God, help us to be gracious, especially in gray areas. Give us grace upon grace, and let us honor you and glorify you. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.